calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to share some exciting news, which is that I will begin offering virtual creative writing courses, beginning with two that will be run over May and June of 2021. I'll share all the details of those courses with you at the end of today's episode, or you can go to my website, www.biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab for the costs and how to sign up. Today's guest is a literary agent who specializes in both fiction and nonfiction on the adult side. As a mixed-race Latinx immigrant, she's passionate about representing under or misrepresented voices and stories that contribute to a larger cultural conversation. Books that are centered around feminist issues have a special place in her heart. She's also the author of The Sunset Sisters and The Faithfuls, being both a storyteller and a story seller is not without its challenges, but she wouldn't have it any other way. She's also a recovering lawyer, but asks that you not hold that against her. Please join me in welcoming Cecilia Lira. Cece, it's so wonderful to have you joining us today. Thanks so much for taking the time out to chat to all the listeners about the 10 things they need to know about writing and publishing. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love your podcast. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. And I know that you preceded the 10 things writers need to know about writing and publishing by saying this is going to be harsh. Give us a bit of a background to that. So when I started writing and working in the publishing industry, I often thought to myself, no one told me that in publishing and then fill in the blanks. It's an industry that, in my experience, and I've heard this from several other professionals, isn't as transparent as it should be, not in the sense that it's sketchy or anything like that, but in the sense that people don't talk about it often enough. So much of publishing is is a lottery system. Luck is a huge part of it. But it doesn't mean that there aren't things that people can know before going into it, or even after you're already into it, that will empower you. Because information is power, right? Like knowing about an industry's challenge is a good thing. It means you can prepare. It means you can be realistic about your expectations. And it means that whatever surprises come your way are more likely to be good surprises. Absolutely. And this is exactly why I launched this podcast, because as a new writer coming into this industry, there was so much I didn't know. There were so many mistakes I made and that I wish I'd known. And the amazing thing about you is that you are both, as you said in your bio, a bookseller and a book writer. I mean, you're author and a So you are seeing it from a really like kind of 360 degree view. Yeah. And I, I'm a very different person as a writer and then an agent, like it's, it really is 
wearing two hats. It, it works out well, but it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, no, very much so. One of the first things that you want writers to know is that competition is fierce. Everyone and their mother wants to be a traditionally published author. A New York Times bestselling author, which is what everyone wants to be, I can already assure you that, that's harder than Harvard Medical School. I don't have the stats to back that up, but I can guarantee you it's true. Anyone who tries to challenge me on this, they're wrong because everyone wants to be a traditionally published author and not everyone wants to go to Harvard Medical School um, because they know that's hard, right? But with, with writing, a lot of people think, oh, it's okay. I'll just write a story. I'll write a book. Um, maybe I'll have to edit a little bit of it. But that's not the case. The market is flooded. Agents get tons of queries. At one point, I was getting anything from 50 to 200 a day. And just going back to what you said before, how I wish I had a dollar for every time I was at a party and someone said, oh, what are you? And you go, oh, I'm a writer. And they go, oh, I have this amazing idea and I'm going to write it one day and I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller. I just haven't had the time to sit down and do it yet, but but I'm going to get to that. And people then, you know, seem to think that it's the easiest thing in the world. And it's just a case of finding the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely not that. Um, time is a huge part of it, but it's an incredibly difficult market. The greater the competition, the harder it is to do something, right? The good news is that, you know, any aspiring writer who knows this, who takes it seriously and who respects how hard it is, will have a leg up. All right. So let's move on to your point two. And this ties into what we, we've said before. It takes time a lot of time. Yes. Publishing moves at the pace of a glacier. A professor of mine once said that, and she was right. I love to quote Anne Patchett on this. So she wrote a great essay called The Getaway Car. And I'm going to quote from that. Basically, she said, if a person of any age to pick up the cello for the first time and said, I'll be playing in Carnegie Hall next month, you would pity their delusion. Yet beginning fiction writers all across the country polish up their best efforts and send them off to the New Yorker. That's her quote. And, you know, it's true. It might seem weird to, to compare a cello um, to writing because you think, well, I'm literate. I can write a sentence. But knowing how to write being literate is not the same as knowing how to tell a story. These are entirely different skills. It's a craft. Learning to write a story is a craft. I'm still learning. We're all still learning, right? Like even you who are, who's, you're, you're an amazing bestselling author. You're st also still learning. It's about really putting in the time and the effort. And if the idea of practicing the craft of writing day in and day out before you're ready for the big leagues is exhausting to you, that's okay. I think it's exhausting too. Everyone thinks it's exhausting. Do you still think it's worth it? If you do, then you're on the right path. You don't have to be like, yay, it's going to be super exhausting. I'm so happy about that. Yeah, because there's days that you sit down and you will spend the whole day writing and the next morning you'll sit down and you'll go, this is all crap. It's utter crap. It's terrible. And so you delete all of it. And if you don't then have something inside of you that makes you sit down again, knowing that you've wasted a day writing the biggest load of hogwash and you go, okay, today's going to be better and I'm going to do it again, then you definitely should not be doing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you know, to your point about the bad days, I, I had a career, an entirely different career before I, I started doing this. I was a lawyer. I was a corporate lawyer. It was the most boring thing I've ever done with my with the years of my life. The worst day I've had in this industry, my worst writing day, the day I want to pull my hair out and I'm so upset and everything is going wrong and I'm being rejected as an agent, I'm being rejected as a, an author, that day is still better than my best day as a lawyer. This is what I'm passionate about. But passion 
is not enough. Passion requires discipline and commitment and just doing it. Just do it. Just put in the effort. Hell yes. I I studied English and communications in university. And then coming out of university, I got distracted by a job that was going to pay me a lot of money. And this was in insurance, in South Africa, health insurance. And at that point as a kid, you've been given a lot of money and you go, well, you know, the writing can wait. Who cares? This is what I'm going to do. And for 10 years, it was the most soul-destroying, awful thing I ever did. I made a lot of money doing it, but I hated every moment of it. And you're 100% right. A bad day in the writing chair is still a million times better than the best day doing something that is not your passion and that you don't love. So moving on to, on to point three, you say that fiction takes a lot of rewriting. And that goes in with the time and everything else we said. Let's speak about that. Yeah. So like I said, I get tons of queries a day and I'm not complaining. I'm thrilled that writers want to query me and I read every single query I get. I don't delegate. Like I I'll start reading and I'll read like the first five pages. And if it's absolutely horrible, I'll stop, but I'll continue reading if I like it. And I think, you know, I get most of these emails late at night which makes sense since people probably fire off emails to agents after their day job, right? Like I guess COVID has changed that. But you know, I'll tell you when my busiest season is, it's December. And I'll tell you why, in my opinion, I think it's NaNoWriMo. So national, like November, the national writing month. And let me tell you something, the novel you wrote in November is not ready to be queried in December. It might not even be ready. Maybe the following December, maybe. Maybe, maybe. You need beta readers. You need to take writing courses. You need to leave it in your drawer or, you know, your, your folder in your computer for at least a month, preferably more. And then reread it. And then you need to do all that again. Um, you need to be tough on yourself. You need to ask yourself the question, did I make, did I write this in the first person? So maybe I should switch it to third person. Um, what if I added a character? What if I removed a character? Again, it probably sounds exhausting, right? Like rewriting things. It is, but it breaks my heart when I get a brilliant query, a great premise, but I can tell the author did not put enough time in it to make it great. Like the execution requires rewrites. It's, it's, it goes back to Ann Patchett's cello analogy, which makes sense. You need to practice. So it's harsh, right? Like querying will take you longer than, than you thought. But if you query right, you'll stand out because everyone is doing it wrong. So you can do it right. And on that point, so my first novel that was published, Hum, if you don't know the words, was the third novel I wrote. I wrote two novels before them and widely rejected by everybody just as well. They were awful. But here's the thing. I didn't rewrite either of those novels. I sat down, I just wrote them out and I was like, oh, I finished a book. This is great. This is amazing. And then I sent it out. And if I think of how many times I rewrote Hum, if you don't know the words, how many words I took out, how many times I changed the premise. And that was the thing that I did different. So what there's that saying, if you're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and expect different results, you know, that's the definition of madness. Uh, And that's what I was doing. And then finally, I did something different and I got different results. So that's, that's a really good point. Your point four is nonfiction. Standing out is really difficult. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people write novels, not that many people talk about writing nonfiction, but I'll tell you a lot of people actually write it because I get so many queries. I love nonfiction. I love representing nonfiction. I don't write it myself, but it's, it's so much fun as an agent. It's a big term and it includes obviously a lot of categories, but like, I would say that I would divide it into two major ones. So memoirs and then other nonfiction. So for memoirs, 
The harsh truth that I have to impart is this. Probably your story, your life story is not interesting. I am so sorry to say this. I feel so bad, but it's the truth. So essentially a memoir is an autobiography, right? So it's your life story, like, and you examine your life and you think about it and you, you know, share what happened. And I get so many queries for, and, and I can tell these people worked hard. Like I'm talking about my life, the way, the fact that my parents got divorced and it, it broke me and I had to go to a different school. And in this different school, I met this kid whose parents had also gotten divorced and we forged a friendship. And now I got married and I just got divorced. So now I have to worry about what to do with my kids and this friend of mine from school, they're still married. And I'm like, that's not, I'm sorry. Like you can fictionalize that up the stakes, you know, change things around to make it interesting, give it a central conflict, etc. But that's not, it's very interesting to you. It's very interesting to your loved ones. It's special and it matters and you matter. It does not a memoir make. I'm fascinated by the number of people I meet who really think that their lives have been that interesting. I mean, I look back on my life and I'm like, meh, I mean, there's been some highlights, but really this is not going to make a good book. I remember at my first international festival of authors in Toronto at a cocktail party. And I mean, I'm 44 years old. I met, I mean, a whippersnapper really. I think he was like 19 years old. And uh, I was the person standing in the corner, clutching a glass of wine, too terrified to speak to any agents or editors. And I mean, that was the purpose of the whole event was mingling. And here this kid, 19 years old, so much confidence, was pitching his memoir to like the head of Penguin At Random 19. House. With, I was like, whippersnapper, <laughs> what the hell have you lived through that this is so interesting? I mean, it's not to say you can't be 19 and have that much of an interesting rare. life. Right. But like, but the bits of his, his pitch that I was hearing, I was like, that's not that interesting. No, like look at the memoirs that sell. Um, again, not by famous people. Cause that's a whole other thing. Regular people writing memoirs, right? Like it's educated by Tara Westover. Tara grew up in a Mormon fundamentalist family, never went to school a day in her life. She was 18 and did not know what the Holocaust was. And she ended up teaching herself mathematics and grammar was admitted to BYU, teaching herself, right? And then ended up going to Harvard and Cambridge. That's an interesting story. Like how you grow up to be totally uneducated to being the most educated you can be, right? Right. And you look at Elizabeth Gilbert, you look at Eat, Pray, Love. I mean, she'd written a few fiction books before that, but that's the book that launched her. And again, that is like a quest for self, you know, a quest for self-love, a quest for knowing yourself. Again, you look at Cheryl Strayed's Wild, but on the face of it, if she pitched that novel and said, oh, my mother died and I went on a long hike, it doesn't sound like a great story, but boy, was that compelling. Well, it's also, so that's where the writing comes in, right? So the thing that people need to know is your story is probably not interesting, but if you can write, if you can write with the flair of a novelist, successful nonfiction reads like fiction. You feel that these people are characters, even though they're real. So that's when the writing comes in. And it's also a lot about timing. Like Eat, Pray, Love, I my bet is that nowadays that thing would never sell because it's been done before. But at the time, no one, had, no woman had written about a journey to find herself. Women didn't get to do that back then. Now it's a bit more common. So it's also about timing. Like it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing. And then like the other side of nonfiction, which is like non memoir. The harsh truth is you need a platform. I don't like this. Of all the harsh realities about publishing, this is the one I most dislike because I think it's silly. I think it should be all about the writing, but that's not the reality and I need to live in reality. So 
A platform means various things. Does it mean a social media following? Yes, it can. It, it Normally, that's what people think of. And that counts. Believe me, if you have millions of followers, great. Good for you. You'll have a book deal for sure. But it can also mean articles. Like, are you an expert on something? Have you written articles? Have these articles done well? That's amazing. That's a platform. Have you written essays? Have these essays been published? Short stories? Like, these things matter too. Your platform is, is is talks that you might give on the subject, right? Like a like it doesn't have to be a TED talk, although that's also great. Well, and and that's what stood uh, Cheryl Strait in good stead, wasn't it? That she was the columnist of what was it, Dear Sugar? No, I forget the name now. But she had and, that. She and had advice. that. Yeah, she had that proof of concept. Yeah, and platform platforms tough. It, it really it really is. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Okay, so our next point is point five, agents are not editors. I and I, I really want to talk about that because we've discussed so much on the podcast how agents these days are doing the jobs mm -hmm. of editors. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of just see your agent as an editor. So why do you say they're not? Yeah, so editorial agents edit a lot. They are still not editors. What I mean by that is this, and this is the analogy I'm going to use. If you were to sell your house, you're going to put your house on the market and you're going to call a real estate agent to make that sale. Would you expect your real estate agent to build your house, to paint your house, to land, to take care of your landscaping? No. He will go into your house and tell you, okay, here's what you need to do to make this as sellable as possible. You need to paint all the walls. You need to I don't know, declutter your house or stage it. He'll give you tips on what to do. But these tips are tips to sell. A good agent needs to be focused on selling your work because that is what's going to make you and, and the agent as well money. And not because we're in it for the money. Like money is a part of it, of course. But if you don't sell your work, if you don't make that money, you're not going to have the book, right? So that's what it is. Like when I first started agenting, I would try to give feedback when I passed on a query. Obviously, I didn't have time to give a detailed feedback, but I tried to let them know the reason I passed. And some of these reasons was good writing, no story, great idea, writing needs work, or too long for traditional publishing, or I was already representing something similar. And a lot of the times I get responses like, why can't you help me fix it? Like, why can't you help me? Because if you're telling me what the problem is, it's because you know how to fix it. And I'm like, because the reason the industry isn't structured in a way that allows me to do that, it would take so much time. That's when the beta readers comes in, the, the writing courses, the, the mentorship, like that's something separate. Again, when your writing is so, so good to the point where your agent is ready to actually sell it, then he'll give you editorial feedback. But, but a querying author should never expect feedback from an agent unless this agent is their agent. And even when they are, Remember, your agent's job is to sell your work. You need to have other sources of feedback too. And something that I've said is that writers should not be afraid to seek out experts in various areas. So in my one podcast, I chatted to Courtney Mom, who helps, uh, she calls herself the query doula, and she helps writers put together an amazing query letter. She helps them put together excellent first few chapters, et cetera, et cetera. And I, myself, before I send my work in, I have an editor who I work with. Her name is Lisa Rivers, and she edits all of my work before, you know, it goes out. And um, yeah, and then, you, you know, you'll have editorial feedback from your agents as well. So I think as writers, we need to get into the habit of seeking out the expertise that we want. Uh, and that means paying for it, but it makes 
the agent's job that much easier to be able to sell the work because the work is so much more polished and professional at that point in time. Right? Like it's queer. If you're querying, if you already have an agent, it's a whole different thing. But if you're at the querying stages, you want to stand out. That's your number one job. And I can tell when something's been polished, maybe by a professional editor, maybe the person is the kind of person who can edit themselves by, by putting some distance, like and taking some time. I don't know what they did, but it needs to be really, really good. Just like a house needs to be built before an agent can sell it. Right. And I follow you on uh, Twitter, CC. And what I love is when you'll suddenly have a tweet about opening up some query, just wanting to read a few pages and then reading through the night because it just grabbed your attention. And every time I see that, I cheer silently for whoever that author is, because that is a dream come true when you're seeking representation to have an agent read through the night because your work is so amazing. And I feel like that is the exception to the rule. I feel like whenever I have these like harsh truths talk with someone, I always hear people saying, well, so-and-so did it, right? Like, and and they're right. So-and-so did it. That's great for so-and-so. But this person is the exception. In life, we can't plan to be the exception. It's bad planning. If you end up being the exception, the gods smiled upon you, great. That's amazing. But come on, you can't plan to be. That makes no sense. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so point seven, you said, can you make a living off of your writing? Yeah, so I hear that all the time. So my first thing is like the myth of the six-figure advance. Like, oh gosh, whenever, okay, so when I do read a, a, a piece I love and I reach out to the author, the author does, and they should, I encourage this, reach out to the other agents they've queried to let them know I have an offer of representation, someone's interested in my work. They should do this, right? Like authors should do everything they can, as long as it's proper and ethical, and this is, to give them the best shot at the industry. So they always ask me, so how much money do you think I can get from this? Anyone who answers this, okay, especially for a debut fiction, if you're like representing Michelle Obama, sure, I'm sure you can give her a, a, a very big number. But anybody who answers this with an actual number, I'm concerned for them because there's no way to know. It's gambling. Like you can say there were other projects that were sold for this much um, and these projects are similar to yours. Sure. But usually it won't be six figures or definitely not seven. People assume that every book sold got a six figure advance. Like I always mention Ellen Hildebrand. She's a great fiction author. She's written, I don't know, 20 novels or something. They're all set in Nantucket. Well, most of them are, and they're amazing. She's a graduate of Johns Hopkins and the Iowa Writers Workshop. Guess what she made for her first novel? She shared this, and I appreciate her doing it. 5,000. At the time, it was a little bit more, but it's still nothing. After paying her agent and taxes, she bought chairs. This 5,000 installment, the sorry, advance was paid in three installments. She is now a number one New York Times bestselling author. It's a marathon, right? Like you need to understand that you're going to pay commission. You're going to pay taxes. It's probably not going to be a lot of money. And again, I know that so-and-so told me that they made six figures. Great. That's awesome. I hope you do. I hope I sell all my works for six figures, but I don't sell all, all my authors for six. You know, that's not how it works. I read an article recently about Canadian authors and it was traditionally published authors. So these were authors who have sold to publishing houses, not authors who have published themselves, self-published. And I think the figure of 
them, the ones who can actually sustain themselves purely on their writing, was something like less than 10%. All the other authors had to get income streams from from other sources. Very, very few of them were able to sustain themselves, earn a living purely on the writing. So for any of you who are wanting to get into writing for, you know, to become JK Rowling or to hit the jackpot, that is like rarer than lightning striking. I think it's rarer than being killed by a serial killer. So that's kind of where we're at right this now. This is what it probably um, is. It's probably rarer than lightning striking you while you're under a rainbow being killed by a serial killer. Like it does not <laughs> happen a lot. Like it's, and if you're doing it for that reason and that reason alone, I would question your motivation. Not because it's not honorable. I'm not that's not my point at all. It's like, do, are you doing this because you love the craft? You have to love the craft. You have to love it even in the worst day because it's so hard. And the good news is, remember, Ellen Hildebrand, she got 5K. So it's okay. It doesn't mean you can't make it to the number one New York Times bestselling. It just means that you might not be there right in the beginning, right? Like you can still do it. While we're talking about the six-figure deal, and I know, Cece, that you look at the inequalities in writing and the disparities in terms of representation. And I'm pretty sure it was an article I read by Jasmine Ward, who said that even after she'd won the National Book Award, she could not get a six-figure deal with her publisher. And this to me was just atrocious, how so many white writers can get a six-figure deal for, if not their first novel, certainly for their second. And here you have a African-American, a black woman who cannot get a six-figure deal even after she's won one of the most prestigious awards. So again, it just shows you the huge disparity in publishing, how publishing is so white and how there's so much work we have to do to fix it. I think this actually goes to your last point. You know, to, to that point, I would encourage people to look up the hashtag publishing paid me on Twitter, white authors were encouraged to share their advances. Other authors of color could do it too, but it was specific call to white authors. And Jasmine Ward shared her advance. Um, she's not white, obviously. But then compared to white men, to cis, het, white men, it's abysmal. It's shameful. So I encourage people to, to look at that. And yeah, publishing needs diversity. Um, publishing is so white. Own Voices, which is also a hashtag you can look up. I encourage people to do that. It's great. It's a good start. I don't even know if it's a good start. It's a start. But, you know, if you look at the surveys, I think it was Lee and Loeb, um, Lee and Loeb Books, the last survey in, I think it was 2015, they found that something like, I think it was like 79% of respondents identified as white. So when you have people reading your work, whether it's agents or editors or, or, or even publicists and, and people in sales who are cis, het, white, and usually wealthy, because that's the other thing about publishing, right? Which is so, so problematic. It's not just that it attracts white people, but it attracts wealthy people. And I guess that's actually a correlation, right? Like if you're wealthy, you tend to be. But then it's a huge problem because if the People behind these books, these serve as gatekeepers. They determine which stories are amplified, which stories get rejected. And if publishing isn't a diverse group, how can we have diverse stories? And then, you know, the same Lee and Low Books survey did, did the same survey again, four years after, so 2019. And the number went from 79% white to 76% white. So improvement, sure, 
but come on, 3%, like it's, it's insulting. People are now hiring more and more diversely. But I'm concerned because, first of all, I see a lot of, especially in Canada, major publishing houses putting out job offers for people in the BIPOC community, which is great, but then it's a contract position. Why is it a contract position? Like, why aren't you hiring them permanently? I don't mean this person permanently because you never know if they'll work out, if they'll want to stay, but why is it not a permanent position? It's, it shouldn't be contract work. It shouldn't be something that's temporary. Okay, so your point uh, seven we actually discussed was that publishing moves at the pace of a glacier. So we have touched on that. Point eight, rejection is a constant reality. It is. And you know, this part, it's almost like a little bit of schadenfreude for querying authors because they're always telling me, oh, well, agents reject you all the time and it's so hard. And I know that I've been querying too. Like I've been rejected by tons of agents, but here's the thing. Yes. Authors get rejected by agents, but agents get rejected by authors too. You know, the tweets that you mentioned that I was like, I've been reading this all night. I spent hours reading something, wrote a beautiful letter, reached out to them, spent hours on the phone or in person before COVID, you know, telling people, I want to be your agent. I will fight for you. I will be your pit bull. I will be so good at this. I promise. Like and they picked another agent and that's okay. They should, they should pick whatever agent they want. But I was rejected. I am rejected all the time by authors and I'm rejected all the time by editors. I'm, I have a project out on submission right now. I sent it out last week. The writing is beautiful. The author is one of the most talented authors I have ever met. I tell her this all the time. I I can't stop gushing. And and sometimes I go, I have to stop gushing. I know, but just one more thing. Like when I'm writing notes on her manuscript or her proposal, actually, it's a memoir. Um, but we, we've received three rejections so far. We just went out with it, right? It's a wide submission. Every time I get it, it breaks my heart. Every time. It, it sucks. Rejection sucks. Editors get rejected too, by the way. So when you have a situation where two editors are, are or two or more, right? Like want your book, you can only pick one. You can only pick one imprint, one publishing house. Yeah, the rejection is tough. It can be yeah. soul-destroying. Constant. Yeah. And best-selling authors get rejected too by in their new books. Sometimes you don't sell the, the, the third or fourth or fifth or sixth or second. I don't know. And by film people, I know a great best-selling author. I knew her before she was a best-selling author. She Nowadays, she got a film deal. But for about two years, she kept getting rejected by film agents. And not just film agents, but like film people in general. And I remember thinking, you, this is such first world problem. You are complaining that you met with this, I'm not going to say the name, but of this big, big person that even I did, don't know anything about film. She went to LA. They flew her there. They still rejected it. That's okay. That happens. You know what I say about rejections? My strategy you should aim to be rejected because this is a smart strategy in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. Let's say you're a querying author or let's say you're an agent like I am. I aim to get 1,000 rejections a year. Might sound like a lot, right? But think about it. If I send out about 20 projects a, a year, right? That's 20 projects. It's not, I mean, it's a, it's a lot, but it's not a crazy amount. And I do a wide submission for each. That's like 50 editors per project. And I will get rejected. So every time you get a rejection, you should count that as a a way that you're actually succeeding in a strange way because you are working towards your goal. And your goal is paved with rejection. The road to publishing is paved with rejection. So if you're getting rejected, it means you're trying. The only people who get rejected are the people who are putting themselves out there. People who are at home writing their work or doing their thing and not sharing their work aren't getting rejected. 
So you should look at rejection. And I'm saying you, but really I mean me because I'm trying to convince myself. I should look at rejection as a part of the process, you know? And if you want to be in the game, you want to you make it work. I agree. I mean, rejection is so tough. I know every time I get rejected, I allow myself to wallow. And this is the thing. I allow yourself to wallow, allow yourself to feel disappointed, but then allow yourself to bounce back and bounce back quicker each time and go, okay, what can I take from this that is useful? What can I use from this as well? Yes. Because I found that often my rejections were the things that taught me the things that I most needed to hear. Yeah. Um, And that's only if you view rejections as opportunities. Okay, let's look at number nine, one-star reviews. This is something that I hear from people all the time. Like one of the things that I love doing is going to writers' conferences. It's all virtual now. And talking to aspiring authors, it's just, I love their energy. It's great. It's the exchange. But one of the things I hear all the time is, oh, but, you know, I'm really afraid of getting a one-star review because my book is going to come out. I'm I'm so happy. Or, or when my book comes out, they're already thinking ahead. What if I get a bad review? They usually say bad review, right? But one-star review is a bad review. What I will say about that, and this to me is seriously, it was a game changer when I realized it. Pick a book, any book. Let's pick I don't know. Where the Cordettes, oh which has got like yeah, a yeah. 4.5 rating. Yes. And there will still be people who slate that book. That's what I'm saying. Like you look, so there are, you know what? I'm actually going to look at where the Crawdads sang. There have been 85,000 reviews. That's reviews, not ratings. There have been almost a million ratings, 944,000 ratings. Okay. Which makes sense because she sold almost 9 million copies. Oh, she sold 9 million copies. So, so it's around about a 10% ratio. Carry on. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So 7%, 7% gave it three stars. Betsy had this to say about where the crawdads sing. Normally I would not finish, let alone review a book I disliked as much as I did this one. But since I bought the book and I'm reading it for my book club, I've decided to say what I think. I found the writing of this romance murder mystery to be painfully split, almost as if there were two different authors, an experienced one for the vivid narrative and an amateur for the dialogue and character development, which in fact may be the case. Uh, Susan wrote, seeing as to how I skipped most of the second half of the book, I have no choice but to give it one star. There are so many things wrong with it. I hardly know where to start. And then she writes a very long diatribe about where to start. So yes, this is our absolute proof that it doesn't matter how many people love a book, there will always be people who hate it. There, with their, there will. And what I hear from aspiring authors is, you know, I don't want to offend. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want someone to dislike my work. Let me tell you, that's like being a doctor and not being comfortable seeing blood. You can't, if you want to be a writer, someone is going to dislike your book. Your job is not to please everyone. It's not. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, one of my favorite all time. I, I read this book for the first time in ninth grade, and I've reread it at least five times because I love it so much. 2,875 people, that's only 1% of people who, who, who rated it, gave it one star. I think all these people are idiots. I think they're, I'm sorry, but I do. I think they're dumb. I think they're incredibly dumb. But you know what? That's okay. I'm sure Toni Morrison doesn't care why, she, you know, well, obviously now she doesn't care, but even before when she was alive, she didn't care. 
And why should she? Because it's not your job. Your job as an author is to tell your story, to tell a great story. And and if you want to get traditionally published, you should take criticism and take feedback, but you should not aim to please everyone. Think about it this way. The world is full of bad people, right? I'm not saying it's the majority, although it might be. The world is full of misogynists and racists. Do you want to please these people? Because I don't. I'm happy to offend misogynists. I'm very happy to offend racist people. So that's a good thing. I remember in the beginning, I used to read my Goodreads reviews and I used to read my Amazon reviews. And I I don't do that anymore because one, recently someone gave my novel, how many of you don't know the words, a one-star review because the novel's cover arrived bent. The cover of the book was bent. And I was like, listen, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover. (laughs) Uh, Besides that, I had somebody also give it a one-star review and go, "Ugh, this author spends all of her time speaking to book clubs, speaking to white women about racism. And she was very critical about this. And I was like, well, who the hell am I going to be speaking to about racism except a bunch of middle-class white women? I I ain't going to be preaching racism to a bunch of black women who are living it every day. So in fact, I consider it an honor and a privilege. And I'm very proud of the fact that I get to speak to middle-class white women about race, because if I'm not speaking to them about it, who is? Uh, And so this person was very upset about that. So you, you always going to piss somebody off along the way and it should be a badge of honor that you are pissing people off along the way. Okay, Cece, so your last point was that publishing needs diversity and again, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead to that so we have discussed that. One of the questions that I got from one of the listeners who emailed me a question, her name is Fitton, she wanted to know how do you go about building your list? I feel that, and I feel like many agents feel this way too, um, what we really care about is good writing. So obviously, um, the way to build a list is to open yourself up to queries, come in these amazing podcasts and talk about yourself and talk about what you're looking for. Make sure that you, like in my agency's website, I have the favorite books I read this year there. So if somebody's writing something in the same vein, they'll know that I'm the right agent for that. I also think it's important to have a mission. And my mission is feminism. The thing that I'm most passionate about in my life is feminism. There are other things I'm passionate about. I'm Latinx, so obviously I'm passionate about Latinx stories. I am a woman, so obviously I'm passionate about stories about women. I come from a very dysfunctional family, so I love stories about dysfunctional families. But even outside my experience, which is very limited because everyone's experience is you need to find that one thing that really stands out for you. And for me, that's feminism. So any feminist story is welcome. I will look at it. I don't care if it's something, unless the dog dies. If it's a memoir and you can't change it, that's okay, but you have to tell me and I will skip that paragraph. I can't read about dogs dying. I'm very sorry. If you want to query me, and I encourage you to, I am looking for stories that are layered and interesting. I love stories about families. I love nonfiction projects. The one thing all my projects have in common is a feminist vein, some type of feminist angle. It can be subtle. It can be on your, in your face. I don't care as long as it's, you know, promoting women. Did you read uh, The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo? Love that book. Yeah. Love yes. Book. Talking about dysfunctional families and feminism. I feel like that's a perfect book that brought that all together. I'm hoping to interview Claire for for the podcast. I'm a huge fan. I, of I'm it. obsessed with that book. It's a, it's an amazing story. I actually listened to that book. I very recently started listening to books, which is something that I never used to do. 
And it was a great, a great, great audiobook too. Cece, what an absolute joy to get to chat to you. You and I met once kind of briefly, I think at one of my book launches, uh, and we didn't get to chat enough, but ours has been a relationship that's been forged on social media over Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, and a mutual respect and admiration for each other. I've just bought both of your books and I cannot wait to read them. And I'm hoping that after COVID, we can finally get together and and have a glass of wine together. Yes. You promised me a boozy lunch, right? I invited you and you said yes. So I will absolutely take you up on that. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for writing the beautiful books that you do. Please keep writing. And now for those details on the two creative writing courses that I will be offering in May and June. The first course is called So You Want to Write a Novel? Maybe you've always wanted to write a novel but just don't know where to begin or you had a really great idea but it fizzled out or you finished your novel but weren't able to sell it for whatever reason. Maybe you're not sure if you're headed in the right direction and would like some feedback on your work in progress. If so, this eight-week course consisting of 16 hours of lecture time is for you. Join me virtually once a week for two hours at a time to learn everything you need to know in order to start working on your novel. Learn about structure, pacing, stakes, characterization, conflict, backstory, plotting, dialogue, and writing scenes in a practical way that will allow you to apply your learning to your work in progress. Test your idea to ensure that it has legs so you don't write yourself into a dead end after just a few weeks. Work in groups to critique each other's work and to get feedback on your own work and get feedback from me with regards to your strengths as a writer and areas in which you can improve. This virtual course via Zoom begins on the 6th of May 2021 and will run until the 24th of June 2021. Webinars are every Thursday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. Then the second course that I'm offering is Writing a Kick-Ass First Chapter. Now, most agents and editors who consider your work won't read past the first chapter. If you don't grab their attention in those first few pages, you've lost out on an opportunity to have your work stand out. Spend four weeks consisting of eight hours of webinar time with me learning how to finesse and polish your first chapter into something that shines. Learn all the theory involved in great openings and how to apply them to your own work in progress. Spend two hours every Saturday morning from the 8th of May to the 29th of May, a virtual webinar, work in groups critiquing one another's work and get personalized feedback from me as well. The online Zoom classes are from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Classes will be recorded in case you have to miss any of them. If you're interested, please go to my website, www.biancamaray.com. Look under the Courses tab for the costs and how to sign up. If you're an Own Voices author from a marginalized or underrepresented group writing about your own experiences from your own perspective, and if you'd like to attend but can't afford the course, please reach out to me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com to apply. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show, 
In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.